0: Welcome back to New Books and Global Ethics and Politics, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Emily Crandall, PhD student at the Graduate Center, City University of New York, and fellow in the Center for Global Ethics and Politics, which is part of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Julie Rose about her book, Free Time, published by Princeton University Press in 2016. Dr. Rose is Assistant Professor of Government at Dartmouth College. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rose. So please, you could join us.
1: Thank you. And thanks very much for having me on. It's a real honor. And I'm looking forward very much to our conversation. And thank you, of course, to those who are listening to.
0: Great. So before we dive into the book, I wonder if we could begin by having you tell us a bit about yourself.
1: Sure. So um, as you mentioned, so I'm a a teacher at Dartmouth College, and I teach political theory. Um, And I started, I came to political theory, I started off um, an undergraduate at the uh, school of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell, and so that was my original background. And then, while studying that, I came upon some political theory classes. Um, originally, in particular, in the history of political thought, and was just really fascinated and loved thinking about normative issues. And so, ended up in graduate school for for political theory. Um, and then my work now is uh, largely addresses issues of work and economic justice. And so in a way, it's come full circle so that the earlier things I had done in industrial and labor relations are now connected to my interest in political theory in a way that I hadn't originally anticipated um, coming to be.
0: Great. So in that vein, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write the book?
1: Sure. So... I when I was trying to decide what to what to work on, um, I had received some advice, which was that you should pick something that you would would really hold your interest in that you would really stay motivated to keep working on because um, it's a long process, and so it's something that you'll be thinking about a lot for a long time and so you know, in thinking about that, I was struck that there you know I've always been interested in issues of economic justice and work, partly for these reasons that. Uh, My background in in ILR had continued. And I also, you know, I was trying to think about different issues that were important and that seemed under addressed. And one of them was really striking to me was this issue of uh, free time, leisure time, working hours, uh, those kinds of questions. And really strikingly, it seemed like this was a real blind spot in our theories of justice um, which have given very little attention to the question of how much free time people have and whether or not people are entitled to have a certain amount of free time and under what conditions and those kinds of questions. And it was striking. So um, Michael Walzer's Fears of Justice, which was uh, first published in 1983, uh, you know, it has a chapter on free time. And in that chapter, Walzer argues that free time is a central issue of distributive justice. But Then I was, as I was studying issues of distributive justice and economic justice, it was actually quite striking that there's very little discussion of free time. Um, And in a lot of ways, it's just taken to be something in the background or taken for granted or taken to be unimportant. These are all things we might, um, we can talk about the reasons for those. Um, And so that seemed really striking to me, partly because, you know, our theories of justice in general, we think that they ought to pay attention to the things that are most important um, for people's lives. And if we reflect on people's lives, most people uh, who, are, who are working, how much free time they have, whether or not they're waiting for the weekend, you know, if they're counting up their number of employer-granted vacation days, these are all really central concerns in people's lives. And so it seems like this big disconnect between our accounts of what the Just Society would look like and how um, we would a- closer approach it. And these kinds of concerns that are really important to people. And then I think I was especially, interestingly, you know, partly because of this educational background, but also um, my parents. So my uh, mom worked in retail and my dad owned a, or a small business selling firewood. And both of them worked very long hours and had relatively little discretion over their hours um, And also had to work evenings and weekends frequently. And um, in my mom's case, because she was working in retail, also, uh, you know, would often have to work on holidays and so forth. And so I think I was especially attuned to these issues of how important work is in people's lives. And so that is part of why the disconnect between um, our theories of distributive justice and economic justice and then everyday people's lives seemed especially striking to me. Great. So why don't you actually just walk
0: us through the central arguments a bit so then we can get into some of the more specifics.
1: Great. So the core argument of the book is that uh, free time is something that uh, we generally require to pursue our own ends, um, whether individually or collectively. And so it's an important resource that we require to, to pursue any of our own projects or commitments. And then the the core argument is that people are entitled to a fair share of free time and on fair conditions to make effective use of their liberties and opportunities. So there are two key parts of the argument, and they correspond to two of the key reasons why free time has, I think, been neglected within our within our theories of justice. So the first of those two steps is one is to think about how we should conceptualize free time. So how should we think of it? Uh, That's the first question. And then the second question or the second um, core part of the argument is, you know, why would people have an entitlement to free time? Why is it something that people would have a claim to um, as part, as an issue of justice rather than just an issue of preference or something like that? So, and just to kind of, maybe might make sense then to take a step back and think through why free time has been neglected and why it hasn't been held to be the case that people do have legitimate claims to free time as an issue of justice. So the background view within uh, broadly liberal egalitarian theories of justice, and I should say that the book is working very broadly within um, these liberal egalitarian theories of justice, which have two central commitments to liberty and to equality, but those commitments are combined in a, a variety of different ways. And so the book tries to be ecumenical within those different approaches so that the core argument on behalf of the importance of free time could be incorporated into different theories of justice on different terms and in different ways. And so the we can as we talk more, we'll see some of those points of departure and um, variation as we go further down the question of implementation. But the core argument that free time is a resource and that people are entitled to free time um, is designed so that it would apply across Different theories of justice. So if we think about the kind of the core approach within um, liberal egalitarian theories of justice is this view that I describe as liberal proceduralism. And so the idea is that rather than ensure that there's a particular fair distribution of all of the various goods that people might want. We instead, a society instead, ought to ensure that there's a fair distribution of background conditions so that people have a fair, um, fair access to uh, a set of liberties and opportunities and then resources to make use of those liberties and opportunities. So the key example here would be money. So rather than ensure that people have you know, a particular kind of housing or particular kind of food or Um, other particular goods, what I would describe as specific goods. Instead, the idea is to ensure that everyone has a fair distribution of money, which is an all-purpose resource that people could then use as they see fit to pursue the various particular goods or specific goods that they would prefer. And so on this approach, there are two key ideas. So one is that um, there are some things that are all-purpose resources and those are things that people could use to pursue their ends, whatever they might be. And so those are the liberties and the opportunities and also the resources like or, you know, things like money. And then there are a set of specific goods, things that people could then choose in accordance with their own ideas of the good life to pursue using their fair allocation of resources. So importantly, leisure has been conceptualized as a specific good rather than as a resource. It's been taken to be the kind of thing that some people might prefer and some people might not prefer. And instead we should ensure a fair background set of conditions, namely the liberties, the opportunities and the resources like money. And then people can pick their own leisure pattern as they prefer. Um, So the, the key, um, Idea here is so one point is just to say that the book doesn't take issue with this background approach to um, distributive justice, this liberal proceduralist approach. You know, I I take that um, on board, it's um, all well and good. But the key mistake is to think that leisure, think of leisure only as a specific good rather than recognizing that free time is also a resource that people require to pursue their own particular ends in the same way as they require money to pursue their own particular ends. And so just a note on the terminology. So in general, when I am describing leisure as a specific good, I'll use that term leisure. And then when I'm describing it as a resource, I'll use that term free time. So to keep them distinct. So leisure has been understood as a specific good because it's either been understood as something like play Uh, So, you know, time engaged in recreation, that kind of thing. And again, you can see how, well, some people want to engage in play or recreation, and that's not an important part of other people's idea of the good life. Or, um, and this is less common today, but very important in the history of political thought through Aristotle, is that leisure has also been understood as time engaged in philosophical contemplation, or Mm -hmm. as time engaged in music, or as in other intrinsically valuable activities. And again, we can think that, well, that's depending on a particular idea of the good life that is appropriate or that is some people's idea of the good life, but not everyone's. And so, again, it looks like on a liberal approach to theory of to distributive justice, we would ensure that people have this fair background and they could choose to engage in leisure on either of these understandings. And then the third way that leisure has been understood in the much the the most common today is to just think of it as time, not engaged in paid work simply. And again, there it looks like well, as long as you know there's a fair distribution of income and wealth, and there's a fair distribution of occupational and educational opportunities, people can choose how much to engage in work. And so again, it looks like leisure is just a specific good um, that some people that's part of some ideas of the good life, and not mm-hmm. others. So on all of those views, it then isn't that surprising that um, a liberal theory of justice wouldn't pay much attention to the issue because it looks like the kind of thing that is downstream and not um, incorporated at the core of our Mm -hmm. theories of justice. So this is where I think the, the first mistake has been made, which is to ignore the fact that free time is itself also a resource that people require to pursue their own ends. And it shares a lot of features with money in this way. It's a kind of thing that one needs to pursue their own ends, whatever they might be. It has these all purpose qualities to it. And so um, that's the first part of the argument then is to do this work, to reconceptualize and to show that free time is this resource. It's the time that we require um, to pursue our own ends. And importantly then, uh, how should we think about free time if it's not one of these three conceptions? Uh, as paid of as paid work or as play or as um, intrinsically valuable activities and i argue that we should think about this idea of free time as a resource as instead as time not engaged in meeting the necessities of life mm-hmm. so it's the time that's not consumed by all those necessary tasks whether they're paid work household labor or personal care and instead it's the time that's free to devote to one on, one's own ends it's It's time that is discretionary, um, building on some of the work that uh, Robert Gooden has done with his colleagues. So the idea is that there's this distinction between our free time, the time that's available to us to devote to our own ends, and our necessary time, the time that is consumed by meeting these necessary tasks of life that really isn't available at our discretion to use for our own ends. And this free time is a resource that we require um, for different purposes.
0: Excellent. Wow, that was really
1: impressive. Um,
0: I was really struck in the argument uh, in the book by the emphasis on free time, not just as a requirement or a resource for the pursuit of one ends, one's ends, but also for the exercise of formal liberties and opportunities. And I was wondering if you could say a bit more about that part of the first part of the argument.
1: Fantastic. So... So that is all on the first part of the core argument. So again, the core argument is that um, we should think about free time as a resource. We should recognize this feature of, of our time. And then the second part is to argue that once we have recognized that free time is a resource, that it is itself part of ensuring fair background conditions so that people can pursue their own ends however they see fit. Then we get to the second part of the argument, which is that people have a claim to free time. And so the argument here rests on um, a principle that I describe as the effective freedoms principle, but it's really a, a core principle held by virtually all liberal egalitarian theories of justice. And the idea here is that it's really important that people have the means to make use of their formally guaranteed liberties and opportunities. And this arises from an early critique of classical liberal theories. So the the critique is that, well, we could guarantee people a set of liberties, you know, the right to vote, say, but if people don't have the means to actually make, to exercise the right to vote, that freedom is quite, it's empty, it's of little Mm -hmm. value to them. And so we can imagine that. So imagine you have the right to vote, but to take material resources to which the effective freedoms principle is most often applied. Mm-hmm. If you, say, don't have the bus, the money to take the bus to get to the polls, or you don't have the money to pay for childcare or other forms of caregiving so that you can leave um, the people who are depending on you at home so you can get to the polls. So if you don't have those kinds of material resources to actually exercise your right to vote, then that right is of little value to you. And so in order to to take this point on board, which is a really important point, um, liberal egalitarian theories of justice, virtually all of them endorse this principle, this idea that people are entitled to a fair share of the resources that are generally required to exercise one's liberties. Mm-hmm. so that people have um, a set of means so that they can actually enjoy the value of their liberties and opportunities. So that principle is widely shared, but in, it's most often applied um, to material resources, namely income and wealth. And you can see that with the voting example, how money would be important so that one could exercise that that liberty. But the voting example is really nice because it also so readily shows you also need time in order right. to exercise your liberties um, in the same way, and it's it's interesting. It's kind of it's just so sort of obvious on reflection that we require time to exercise our liberties. So, yeah. you know, in the same way that the say the person who has um, say young children at home or elderly parents at home that they're taking care of needs, let's say maybe money in order to to get to the polls so that they can pay for someone to to help out. Um, it might also be the case, you know, it's clearly also the case that they need the time to actually to actually get to the polls or, you know, the time to um, off from work to get to the polls. And mm-hmm. and then that generalizes. So, you know, voting is a relatively discrete activity. Um, but you could think about, let's say, all of our political liberties. So to to canvas for a candidate or to um Uh, join up with others and attend political meetings or protests or to, um, you know, go to meetings in one's local community. All of those kinds of things can take a lot of time. And again, if you don't have the time that's available, if all of your time is taken up by meeting the necessities of life, uh, then you wouldn't really have access to those political liberties. They would be, in effect, empty for you. And interestingly, that holds even if you don't, if you have plenty of material resources, but you really just don't have any access to free time, um, you also would be lacking the conditions to make effective use of your liberties. So that we have this idea that you have this discrete and distinct claim to free time um, as one of those conditions that's required so that you can make use of those liberties so that they aren't empty um, of little value to you. And that applies to the basic liberties, you know, the core liberties of um, the political liberties or um, freedom of religion, so the ability to practice one's religion, mm-hmm. uh, freedom of association, those core liberties. But it also applies to the idea that, you know, we should have um, the means to make use of of any of our liberties, to do any of the things that we might be free to do within our society. Um, you know, and interestingly, you um, one of the things that's striking about the kind of neglect of this idea is that if you look back to American 19th century labor reformers, they recognize this idea. And my favorite is one of their slogans was that workers are entitled to eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for what we will. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really picking up on that idea that people should be entitled to a fair share of time to pursue what we will to pursue whatever our projects and commitments might be. So it extends from the basic liberties to the full set of liberties and opportunities that we formally enjoy so that we can actually enjoy them.
0: I thought too, that the way you delineate free time as a specific discrete resource does some interesting work against kind of like choice liberalism and sort of complicates um, what we think about as the ability to make choices or how we make choices um, in these kinds of under these kinds of conditions, and I was wondering if you could say a bit more about um, the sort of robust conditions that you outline that would be required for choices to sort of truly be made freely.
1: Great, that's a great question. So one of the the ideas in the background, um, and this gets in a way to part of another reason why free time has been neglected, is this idea that, well, there's this implicit assumption that people can freely choose their hours of work and the hours that they devote to other necessary tasks. And so this is part of this idea that someone might accept the core claim as I've developed it that... um, on the basis of the effective freedoms principle, people do have this claim to free time since it is this generally required resource that we require to pursue our liberties and opportunities. One might accept that, but then think, well, that's true, but uh, as long as there's a just distribution of income and wealth in the background, that'll take care of it. And then people can freely choose how to allocate their time again. And so again, we don't need to pay really distinct attention to free time. So that's another implicit idea that's in the background here for why this idea has been neglected. And so I think that that idea rests on um, something I call the time money substitutability claim. And that depends on two further assumptions. So one is that this assumption that People can freely choose their work hours so that labor is perfectly divisible. And the other is that people can always exchange their uh, money with the satisfaction of their basic needs. And it turns out that for both um, empirical reasons and ethical reasons, neither of those conditions reliably hold. And so we can't just assume that people can um, choose their work hours in these ways, or choose uh, how to satisfy their basic needs. So, on the first point about um, work hours, so one point is of um, that uh, there's this economic phenomenon described as overemployment, which is that some some a lot of people, um, and there are different estimates ranging from like say a quarter to a third of American workers are overemployed which means that they would prefer to work fewer hours than they do, even for a corresponding reduction in pay. But they can't find work within their occupation that would allow them to reduce their work hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a, a good way of showing that um, even if we did have you know fair background conditions with respect to income and wealth, we also have to pay attention to the actual terms of our um our working conditions to ensure that people actually have access to jobs that would allow them to have their fair share of free time, the, the total amount of free time. Um, and similarly, I should, I should note here that when I argue that people are entitled to a fair share of free time on fair conditions, so that includes you know, having enough free time, a total amount of hours, but it also means that we should have cl- claims to free time on a a predictable schedule so that you can actually Mm -hmm. make use of it and that the periods of free time that you have access to should be of sufficient duration again, so that you can actually make use of it. And we could, we talk about policy issues. You can see the various ways in which various um, labor conditions undermine those conditions Mm -hmm. so that people don't actually have access to work on a predictable schedule. um, If they say have a zero hours contract, or if they're exposed to mandatory overtime, or they might not have it of in periods of sufficient duration if say they have to be constantly on call or they have to constantly respond to email um, after work hours so that their free time is constantly interrupted so they can't devote it to their own projects really. So again, then you can see how work conditions might violate those conditions so that people, even if they say, did have decent wages still wouldn't have access to um, work conditions that allow them to have free time both in a, a total amount of free time um, and also in these conditions where it's both predictable and uh, of sufficient duration. Mm-hmm. So that's on the on the one hand then about, about work hours and then it also holds true as well when we think about, um, of, about the other ways in which our free time can be reduced. So our necessary time is not just our time engaged in necessary paid work, but also time engaged in necessary household labor and caregiving and also necessary um, personal care. so all of these things constitute the necessities of life. they're all things that we must devote time to to meet our our basic needs and we can't just assume that if people had um, money that they would readily be able to meet their basic needs so Partly, this is because some basic needs, we just have to meet ourselves. So we have to sleep ourselves. We have to exercise mm-hmm. ourselves. You know, Having as much money um, as you want isn't going to change those, those facts. Um, and, then, and so that would be a really important, too, if we had especially people who have time-intensive bodily needs. So if you have a disability that requires a lot of time, say, in physical therapy or attending doctor's appointments and those kinds of things managing one's conditions, that can add up to a lot of time. And again, it might not be the case that you know money is, is what you would um, meet that. Mm-hmm. And similarly, mm-hmm. uh, it might also be the case that even if we could uh, use money to purchase the satisfaction of our basic needs, someone might have legitimate ethical objections to doing so, either objecting commodi- to commodification or... Um, Objecting to the kinds of social inequalities that uh, arise when hiring someone to say do caregiving in a in an intimate domain, and so again we might think that well people need who, people who object to that kind of hiring out of meeting the basic needs. Well, of course some people might be fine with that. If others have legitimate objections to that, mm-hmm. again having money isn't going to to be sufficient, and so that suggests that a whole range of conditions have to apply for people to have their fair share of free time under fair conditions. So a set of labor regulations, speaking to the first point, and then also a set of other conditions. So we might have public provision of some caregiving or uh, public provision um, of other facilities or um, additional assistance with some kinds of things. Um, So there are these range of conditions that have to apply In addition, that is, to all of the conditions that obtain with respect to income and wealth. This isn't to say that those aren't really important conditions as well. And of course, many people, in addition, lack free time because they must work really long hours just to earn a basic, decent living. And so, of course, also wage regulations are going to be a huge um, part of this. And interestingly, we have to have an account of free time and its distinct importance to really be able to specify well, what counts as a fair or decent wage? Interestingly, the idea of a fair wage relies on this idea of, well, how many hours should you have to work in order to earn a decent living, which is the flip side of thinking about how much free time we would need. So, you know, a lot of things would have to obtain with respect to income and wealth and then also these labor regulations and other forms of public provision in other domains as well.
0: This is so great. I want to come back to this really rich and robust policy platform. But first, I want to ask about the chapter on caregiving. I really loved um, the way that you sort of give an account of free time for caregivers as a a resource that works toward gender justice. And I wondered if you could say a bit more about this or perhaps a bit about why you take um, constructing the positive case for gender justice to be so difficult but so important.
1: Excellent. Right. So I approach the issue of gender justice thinking about how exactly does this concern with free time interact with our concerns about gender inequality and gender justice? Because they clearly have this very close relationship, especially when we think mm-hmm. about how uh, why women do um, greater share of caregiving in our society an important domain of necessary work a huge amount of necessary work that's done in society and um, and all of the the critiques of how that is not adequately recognized or um, remunerated so that that big cluster of ideas is clearly intersecting with our concern with free time and then also especially when you look at different segments of the population women do um, an overall total greater um, greater total amount of work. So if you take, for instance, working parents of young children, uh, working mothers on average spend less time in paid work than working fathers of young children, but they do an offsettingly greater amount of unpaid household labor so that they're in aggregate doing a greater um, total amount of work. This is the, the idea of the second shift here. So these questions are clearly... Um, Connected, and so I wanted to think about how they're connected, and especially the question of what kinds of um, policies would be justified to address this um, question. So, interesting. So, from the again, from within the liberal account of gender justice, the focus has been on ensuring that there that people are choosing um, their bundles of, let's say, work and on and household labor and then free time this assumption that people are um we want to ensure that people are choosing those uh those bundles from within terms that are freely chosen and that the conditions of choice are equal so the primary concern has been on paying attention to those conditions so how to correct for gender socialization or respond to the facts of gender socialization, which is a really complex question. How to how to think about that issue, and so that's one question: is the the facts of gender socialization that lead to these dynamics that we observe with respect to work and caregiving? And then another is to think about: well, are people's options actually equal? Are men and women's options actually equal? Um, in addition to these problems of uh, or these questions of socialization. And here then the focus is on addressing issues of discrimination in the labor market or uh, issues of the the pay gap between men and women or issues of sexual harassment, all of which combine to make it the case that men and women don't face equal options in the workplace. And they also are part of the dynamic which can lead some families um, of heterosexual couples to decide that the, you know, it's more uh, advantageous for the, say, woman to do more of the caregiving because she's facing these unequal options in the labor market. So again, like these kinds, all of these dynamics are part of what explains the patterns of what we see um, within, within the workplace. But another set of dynamics that I think we haven't paid enough attention to is that even if counterfactually, very much not like how it is in the present, even if men and women did have um, free choice among equal options. So if they weren't subjected to different degrees of socialization with respect to work and caregiving, and they did have equal options with respect uh, to the conditions of work, if they were choosing from conditions that are themselves unfair, I think that that's another important domain of injustice. And it's something that we haven't paid enough attention to. So the the idea is that if we recognize that free time is itself an appropriate concern of our theories of justice to which people are entitled, then even if, say, men and women were freely choosing and equally choosing, but the options that they faced were unjust, let's say that the only option was that working parents must spend, say, 80 hours engaged in work, you know, working full-time and then doing full-time work to care for young children. Mm -hmm. Uh, That in itself, if we develop the argument about free time and some of its implications and some of these uh, particular details, we could see that that is in itself unjust. And so that's an an important domain of gender injustice is that we have to think about our men and women not just having free choice among equal options, but are they also choosing from among a set of fair options that are set by our broader theory of gender justice or broader theory of justice, excuse me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the idea here is that, of course, the the problems of free choice and equal options don't obtain in our existing world, but the, the conditions of fair options also don't obtain. And so this is both an injustice with respect to time and also an um, injustice with respect to uh, with respect to gender.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you mentioned a couple
0: things in passing already about this, the different policy implications. But I was wondering if you could say a bit more about that. This is such a, I thought such a clever way to um, defend a really robust and redistributed public approach to public policy on this one principle of, of free time. And I think it's really compelling and convincing. So maybe if you could just walk the listeners through that, that what that
1: platform looks like. So there are, we could divide them into, um, let's say, four different uh, domains. We could divide it up in a few different ways and work through it. So the first is going to be that we'd have to ensure that people uh, in the labor market have access to work on conditions that allow them uh, to have their fair share of free time and on fair conditions. So the central idea here would be that we'd have to have some kind of maximum hours law. So that's one idea. And then
0: I love that idea, by the way. Yeah, I
1: like <laughs> and, and, and it's worth pausing for a moment on this idea of a maximum hours law because it shows some of the distinctive features of the argument. So if we go back to the core idea of why um, people are entitled to free time, it's because people need this time, time not devoted to the necessities of life, so that they can pursue their own ends, whatever they are. Now, importantly, some people might choose to spend some of their Uh, free time engaged in work and so this raises attention with uh, the question of a maximum hours law but so we have two different groups of people so some people might choose to spend some of their free time engaged in engaged in work but of course some people might prefer not to spend their free time engaged in work and would actually like to spend it devoted to some of their other projects and commitments And so the the ideal policy would be something that tried to balance these two things so that it both protected uh, the people who didn't want to spend their free time engaged in work. They wanted to do other things with it and allowed those who did want to engage in work um, the option to do that as well. So the idea would be the ideal policy would be something that allowed people the right to refuse to work more than a maximum number of hours so that they could have their fair share of free time. Now, of course, the social dynamics must might be such that it's, it could be, in some cases, tough to reliably ensure the right to refuse to work. So I think you could build in additional creative policy solutions to make that a more robust right to refuse to work so that the people who really don't want to uh, engage in work in their free time um, who really do want to take their the cap number of hours are a not um, punished in terms of hiring and firing and compensation decisions, and also are not in other ways implicitly or subtly pressured through um, social dynamics into not taking that option. Um, so that's one one set of policies would be uh, some kind of maximum hours law that had that kind of structure. Uh, One creative idea might be to say um, if the competitive dynamics within an industry were such that, you know, the pressures to work longer hours were really great and it was hard to to resist those pressures, Uh, we might um, say that only a certain percentage of employees in a firm are uh, permitted to work longer than the maximum hours so that the default is set not to work longer hours, but to work the the threshold number of Mm -hmm. hours. So those kinds of things um, could be done. And of course, if the competitive pressures were so great, it might be the case that a prohibitive maximum hours law would be justified so that no one in a firm is entitled to work more than say uh, 30 hours a week, if that's what's required to ensure that everyone has their fair share of free time. Uh, And and the question of how much free time people are entitled to is this kind of downstream question that we could um, return to. But of course, then people could also work a second job or moonlight or do other entrepreneurial work and so forth. And so it still respects this founding idea, this original idea that, well, people are entitled to free time to pursue their own ends, whatever they might be. So again, going back to that idea of balancing both protecting free time for those who want to use it for other purposes and these other, these other workers. So then in the labor market, another set of concerns are, of course, also going to ha- have to do with um, wages and salaries so that people can actually choose to work uh, a certain number of hours and earn a, a fair income as well. And so we can, again, uh, our broader theory of justice will set the terms of what a a fair or decent income is. you know, Of course, the idea of a decent wage would be the kind of bare minimum, but it might be much more demanding than that. And Mm so, again, we'd want to ensure that someone could earn a fair income while only working a certain number of hours so that they did have access to um, a fair amount of free time, so that they did have access to those hours for what we will, going back to the, the labor slogan. And then there would also be a set of regulations having to do with the predictable schedule, um, with discretion over one's work hours, uh, at the employer, at employees' discretion. That is, um, the uh, protection against working um, mandatory overtime on short notice, or having this these zero hours contracts, which are this arrangement where you don't have any specified hours as an employee, but you're basically constantly on call. And this is especially um, prevalent within certain service industries. So uh, servers and and restaurants and so forth. So they're just basically on call for whenever their employer uh, requests that they're available to work. And so of course you can see how that that would interfere with the ability to make effective use of your free time to pursue your own projects if you're basically always um, having having to be available uh, to work. And again, the kind of email policies, we could think about some of these other policy implications connected to this idea of ensuring that people have free time on, on fair conditions. Um, I'm going to jump then to a, a, another set of uh, conditions within the, the workplace, which connected these ideas about gender justice that we were just speaking yeah. about. So those are ideas that, you know, are. Our work conditions were developed on this model that there was an ideal worker who was um, generally he was working a full time shift and then someone else at home, the woman, was taking care of everything at home. And so that has been built into our understanding of what would be a a standard um, work uh, schedule. And so the idea is that, well, we should reform our institutions of work so that people could could do, um, say, full-time work or could do full-time caregiving or, importantly, could combine work and caregiving. So if we think about how people are entitled to free time, and free time is the time that's devoted to necessary paid work or household labor or personal care, people should have this ability to have free time that is apart from the combination of their paid work and their household care, um, and caregiving, other forms of caregiving. So we can imagine other types of regulations that would give people entitlements to work shorter hours, um, or to have extended periods of leave for different forms of caregiving. Um, And similarly, also for people who have time intensive bodily needs, again, there would be a set of accommodations that uh, one would be entitled to a different work schedule or shorter work schedule or periods of leave. So that, again, if you look at the full bundle of necessary time, people still have their claim to a fair share of free time. And that in order to have that free time, they have to have access to shorter work hours, given this greater work they're doing in other domains. And it might be just worth interjecting here uh, when we're talking about the labor market before I want to turn to another set of labor market concerns is that as I, I noted at the very beginning that the the approach is within this is an ecumenical one within liberal egalitarian theories of justice very broadly, so that the core argument on behalf of free time applies to different theories of justice, and then that when we get into some of the details of those different views, there will be um, points of divergence. And one of those issues where there's different different, um, views is about how sensitive our ideas, our theories of justice should be to different questions of choice and responsibility. Mm -hmm. And so one set of those has to do with occupational choice. Another set of those questions has to do with caregiving. So on some views, uh, the fact that someone, say, chose to have children or chose to work in a time-consuming job uh, would mean that that ought to count as a a use of their free time rather than as necessary time. We can bracket that for now. Uh, The view that I develop in the book, so again, I've flagged this as a point where people can take different approaches, and then when you get to the downstream policy implications, that'll have different... Different upshots, um, and the, the core argument can apply even to views that take a very demanding position on responsibility that are highly responsibility sensitive. Uh, the view that I develop is is not as uh, demandingly responsibility sensitive when we get when I develop in the later chapters. So I think that um, people should be entitled to free time within the occupation occupational category of their choosing, given the value of freedom of occupational choice. And also that uh, parents of children, caregiving, I argue, ought to count as necessary time, not as a discretionary use of one's free time, because children are a valuable public good and parents are providing um, kind of socially necessary labor that, in a way, they're meeting a basic need on behalf of the rest of society. And so we ought to count that as a form of necessary time in the same way that we count paid work. Um, But some people might take more demanding views about responsibility and say, you just have to have access to one occupation that allows you to have free time, or you're only entitled to view uh, caregiving as necessary if it is, say, unchosen. Um, You might think care for an elderly parent counts as um, unchosen in, in some respects. So Again, these are the kinds of points of variation, but that, you know, I flag that here just because it, it becomes evident when we're talking about these questions of of policy implications, and you can see how different positions on those questions would have, would lead to different kinds of policy, um, policy recommendations. Yeah, and so then the last set of labor conditions that um, I'd wanna flag as important is also one of the chapters is about um, having access to shared free time for the sake of freedom of association. So the idea here is that, interestingly, freedom of association, unlike the other liberties for which people require time, does not uh, just require that each person has enough time, but also that we have time that we share with each other because the core exercises of our freedom of association require spending time together. Um, And so if we think about association, not just in political terms, but also uh, religious or familial or social or any other kinds of gatherings that we might want to have with each other, that requires, generally speaking, that we spend time together. And so it's important then that people have access not just to a certain amount of free time, but they also have access to these periods of shared free time of a sufficient duration so that they can really exercise their freedom of association. And this is really vivid in nice. an example from the, the Soviet Union and the um, from this brief window um, about 1929 to 1931. They experimented with a different work schedule so that they could have a constant production schedule. Mm-hmm. And so what they did was divided the The whole society into five different cohorts. So each one, each cohort had a different work day and the cohorts weren't, um, uh, they didn't really pay close attention to the divisions of whether or not families or friend groups stayed together. Mm -hmm. And so if, you know, my work day was, uh, or my rest day in each group, each cohort uh, worked four days and had one rest day. So if my rest day was day one and yours was day two, we would never have the opportunity to associate together. And that's a problem, one, if we already have close associations, say between family or friends or co-religionists, but it also is a problem for creating new associations across different groups. And so if we are all separated into these different rest days and never have any overlapping period of free time, that really undermines our freedom of association. And interestingly, you know, social life really suffered under this regime, um, and it was abandoned. You know, it was really only lasted for this this short window. And it's also interesting, so as I develop in that chapter, is that this concern for ensuring that people have access to shared free time can, again, if it's given proper justification and qualification so that it's um, consistent with our uh, liberal principles, uh, would give us reason to potentially favor something like uh, Sunday closing laws, um, mm-hmm. again, in this modified and appropriately justified form, because they are this institution that provided people with access oh. to shared period of free time. Of course they had <laughs> explicitly religious origins, mm-hmm. but interestingly, when the Supreme Court, uh, considered the question of whether Sunday closing laws were constitutional in this case in 1961, um, McGowan v. Maryland. And they considered the various justifications. And and they, of course, acknowledged that the laws had this religious character um, from the outset, but that there were also these secular justifications on behalf of closing laws. And that one of the secular justifications was to ensure that people had time that they could spend together so that working people weren't divided into different rest days where, you know, some of us have these various windows, none of which ever overlap. And that in order to ensure that people really can spend time together, one way to do that is to have a common period of free time. Now, of course, it doesn't have to be Sunday. We could say make it Wednesday or Tuesday and Thursday evenings or something like that. But the idea would be that people would have a right to refuse to work again, going back to the ideas from the Maximum Hours Law, uh, within this common period of free time, so that we do have access to this period of shared free time. And there are various ways we could ensure that you could instead do it by providing lots of free time or discretion over work schedules. But one way that we might consider doing this is by having access to this common period of free time. So that's, again, going back to the idea that people are entitled not just to a fair share of free time, but also on fair conditions. And one of those fair conditions is that the free time is shared with other people um, in one society.
0: I'm glad you brought up the section on the Sunday Closing Laws. I thought it was really rich and compelling. And I urge listeners, if they're interested, to take a look at the book as a whole. Um, But, Julie, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we conclude, can you perhaps tell us what you're working on now?
1: Yes, we' happy to. Um, and it, it comes out of the, this book on on free time. So I'm now interested in questions of economic growth and how we should think about the value of economic growth. And so it arises out of this project in that one of the objections that might be raised is that, you know, if we did all of these things to ensure that people had greater access to free time, Uh, in the ways that I was just describing, well, wouldn't that slow our rate of economic growth? And I think that one of the interesting upshots of recognizing that free time is a resource that people require that's valuable to them in the same way as money or income and wealth are, is that it it reframes that, that question. So we might instead think, well, if there are these different kinds of valuable resources that people need, and some of them Are material, but some of them are temporal resources, this resource of time. Does that change how we think about the value of economic growth? So, the idea is that beyond some level of wealth, say once a society is wealthy enough that if all of its uh, income and wealth were fairly distributed, uh, everyone would have enough money to meet their basic needs or generously above that. At that point, uh, does that change? the impetus to continue pursuing economic growth? And even at different stages of of economic conditions, might we instead think about taking the gains from further productivity growth in the form of more free time rather than uh, ever greater production and consumption and income? And so those are the kinds of questions that come out of thinking about free time as something that is itself important in a in the kind, in the same kind of way but distinctly from income and wealth and leads to these broader questions about what kind of economic development should we pursue and on what terms and why might we have reason to prefer gains on other dimensions rather than ever greater levels of income and wealth
0: Very exciting. That sounds like a fantastic project. I'll look forward to watching out for it as it comes out. Um, Thank you so much for joining me, Julie, for this discussion today. It's been so great.
1: Thanks very much. I really enjoyed the conversation and your questions. And uh, thanks to all of those of you who who are listening. Thank you. Great. Take care.